You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a recording of Holocaust Education Ireland's annual lecture to mark the November pogrom. The 2023 lecture was given by Dr. Mark Jones, who is Assistant Professor at University College Dublin. The lecture was organised by Holocaust Education Ireland in association with Trinity College Dublin and University College Dublin. It took place in Trinity. Mark Jones' lecture, 1923, Hitler's Breakthrough Year, was introduced by Dr. Patrick Houlihan from Trinity College Dublin. Welcome everyone to this evening's lecture by the historian Dr. Mark Jones, 1923, Hitler's Breakthrough Year. I'm Dr. Patrick Houlihan, Assistant Professor of History here at Trinity College Dublin. I'd like to wish you all a warm welcome. This is a collaborative co-hosted event arranged not only between two history departments at University College Dublin and Trinity, but also sponsored and organized by Holocaust Education Ireland. I'd like to thank all the co-organizers and sponsors for their hard work and generous support. It's truly a team effort. Mark's lecture tonight is historically evocative for many reasons, and early November is especially poignant for anniversaries in German history juxtaposing anniversaries like the Hitler Putsch of 1923 and Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, in 1938, with more hopeful episodes like the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It is a keen time for historical reflection on the course of events in 20th century German history and their contemporary legacies. But uh, before I introduce Mark, I'd like to invite representatives from the co-sponsoring organizations to make a few uh, remarks. So we have uh, Professor Thomas O'Dowd, Trinity College Dublin, and chairperson of Holocaust Education Ireland. Professor O'Dowd. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. And uh, I'm delighted to see so many people here tonight, people from the embassies, from academia, from the public, and uh, this gives us a great lift in Holocaust Education Ireland, where our mission is to memorialise, which we do with the uh, Holocaust Memorial Day at the end of January, and education. We have several education events uh, throughout uh, the year. It gives me particular pleasure to work with uh, UCD and Trinity in uh, putting uh, this lecture together and added pleasure in Mark Jones giving it, who's been he's on home ground of course here in Trinity, lest we forget and he's been a great supporter of uh, HEI so thank you all very much and thanks for coming along Thank you Professor O'Dowd um, It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's featured speaker, Dr. Mark Jones of University College Dublin. Mark is assistant professor at University College Dublin. He is a specialist in the history of political violence, war, and revolution. I can recommend to you his previous books that include Founding Weimar, Violence and the German Revolutions of 1918-19, that is published by Cambridge University Press in 2016, and um, Anfang war Gewalt, uh, published by Propylaen, uh, the first edition in 2017. It's now in its third edition of 2018, and it's also available in the publication series of the German Federal Agency for Civic Education. As Professor O'Dowd mentioned, Mark was educated at Trinity College Dublin. It's a pleasure to welcome, welcome Mark back to his alma mater. But uh, he was also educated at the University of Tübingen and the University of Cambridge. His PhD is from the Uni European University Institute in Florence. And Mark has held uh, numerous fellowships, including visiting fellowships at the Free University of Berlin and Bielefeld University. He's also the director of a major four-year Irish Research Council-funded project entitled Revolutions in the Age of Acceleration. Now, in, indeed, he is among the, as the publicity says, I think that is, no, uh, that is quite right, he is among the leading English-language historians of modern Germany and the Weimar Republic. His talk tonight stems from his recently published book, 1923, The Forgotten Crisis in the Year of Hitler's Coup. It is an excellent book, and I urge you to read it. It's available at Hodges Figgis in paperback. So without further ado, Mark, we welcome you to Trinity.
pleasure to, to be here. What I want to talk about this evening is an aspect of 1923 that should be of particular interest to everybody in this room and everybody attending an event uh, organised by Holocaust Education Ireland. And that is the place of anti-Semitism in what we may call Hitler's breakthrough year, the year of 1923. So what I want to start by saying is the Weimar Republic. Where is Weimar Germany? We understand where Germany is. We understand the map of Germany. Uh, where is it in terms of its place in history? And the first observation I would make about that is to use art. Weimar is a post-war society. These pictures are famous. Otto Dix is probably the most famous painter from Weimar, Germany. Dix captures the horrors of trench warfare, captures the att attempts to escape from uh, those horrors through cultural expression, expressionism, through the Roaring Twenties, this image of decadence on, on our right. This is Weimar. The point I'm making here is these people could walk into our world and they would look like us, they would be modern subjects just as we can walk into their world and be modern subjects too. In other words, the 1920s is the starting point of a form of modern subjectivity which is present with us in today, to, to today. And I think historians of Weimar Germany have argued now for about two decades that, it, that in addition to seeing Weimar as being the, um, you know, the historical time that gives us Nazi Germany and the pathway from Weimar from 1918, the creation of the Republic to the Third Reich, in addition to seeing that place as being the origins of Nazism, we need to also see it as a laboratory of modern society, a laboratory of what modernity can be, what it can become. It can end in a different way to becoming the Third Reich. That is a point that we need to stress and we need to understand that point because that makes the question of how did the Third Reich come about a harder one to answer than was the case in an older historiography where historians argued Weimar was doomed from the start or that it was a republic without republicans. And when you take that paradigm, you don't face the challenge of where does Nazism come from to the same degree because the story is the rise of the Nazis rather than the story being the failure ultimately of liberal democracy and of modern subjects to avoid the appeal of racism, nationalism and war. And that is my, st my starting point for why I'm interested in Weimar. The second point, why 1923? Why a book about 1923? And the answer to that question is because everything that destroys Weimar Germany between 1930 and 1933 is present in 1923, but the Republic survives. And so the question for me is, why does a Republic that fails and ends in National Socialism in 1932 in the summer and Jan uh, with the, uh, the coup d'etat in Prussia and in 1933 with Hitler being appointed Chancellor, why is that republic able to survive the threats, problems, the spiral of crises that take place and that, that, that it faces in the year 1923? That's my broader point for why, why a book on the single year 1923 is worth, was in, in my opinion worth researching and writing, and I'm going to argue to you that it's worth reading. It's because when we try to think about Weimar Germany, we ask the question, why does, it, why does the republic and the democracy collapse? We can also ask the question in 1923, a decade earlier, why does the Republic survive that year? And what can those two contrasting points in history tell us about the fate of liberal subjects, liberal democracy, uh, German democracy, and, wider, and the wider history of, of what, what brings people to support Nazism in the end, in the later years of the Republic? They can tell us, those, these two comparisons can tell us a great deal about uh, the key questions that we ask about where Nazism comes from, how it functions, how ultimately it succeeds in destroying the democracy after failing in 1923. And National Socialism does fail in 1923. The of the Hitler Putsch, which is next, in, in, in the next few days, it's worth remembering that is a 20-hour event on the 8th and 9th of November. It involves about 2,000 armed men. It ends when the Putsches march through Munich and when they face the first armed forces of the state that fight back against them, the putsches are defeated in about two minutes. Hitler himself avoids death, as many of you probably know. He's at the front of the march. He's linked arms with the man called Erwin von Schäubner Richter. That is because at that time, it's normal for people at the front of marches to link arms because they fear that they will be charged by crowds or police. And so you, you keep, keep the line together by linking arms shoulder to sh shoulder. When the police fire, the bullet hits Schäubner-Richter beside Hitler. Schäubner-Richter and Hitler fall to the ground together. 
Uh, Hitler dislocates his shoulder because it's pulled out of his, his socket as he falls. Schäubner Richter is shot and killed. If the bullet that kills Schäubner Richter is a few inches in the other direction, Hitler dies on the 9th of November 1923 and would be as known today as the name Schäubner Richter. Schäubner Richter, by way of a footnote, is a really important figure in terms of Holocaust education. I'm diversing from theme here, but it's important to say Hitler later says, who remembers the Armenians? It's a very important qu quote when Hitler is talking about the Ar genocide of the Armenians in the First World War. Um, he says, who remembers the Armenians? We speculate that one of the best sources for Hitler's later knowledge about the genocide of the Armenians is Schäubner Richter, because he was a diplomat for the German Empire in Ottoman Turkey as the genocide of the Armenians was taking place. Um, so that is another important thing to think about in terms of the context of um, the evolution of Hitler's thought and also the what connections were happening in Munich and people thinking around the putsch of, 19, uh, of November 1923. Uh, as I've said, the putsch itself, it really matters for what comes later. You're all interested in what happens on the 8th and 9th of November 1923, interested in Hitler and Schrodinger Richter in that moment, because Hitler returns to the same spot in 1933 as Chancellor of Germany. And the reenactment of the putsch then becomes a central aspect of the National Socialist political calendar, the National Socialist cultural calendar. It becomes an event that is celebrated yearly under the Nazis. There is a reduced celebration in 1934 because it takes place just after the so-called Night of the Long Knives and the murder of Rom and other associates. Rom is one of the most important figures in the putsch of November 1923, <coughs> in the attempt putsch of November 1923, and so in 1934, the commemorations just after one of the main protagonists has been murdered by the regime he helped bring into, into being, the commemorations are, and the celebrations are subdued in 34, and as a response to that, in 1935, the regime, um, how shall I put it, goes fully national socialist in terms of the celebration of its own origins, and it exhumes the bodies of the putschists who are killed in November 1923. It puts them onto special carriages, parades them through the centre of Munich. It's a parade and ceremony that takes place over, over a 24-hour period. The bodies are left in these, in these uh, um, specially created celebratory um, carriages overnight at the, uh, the, the place in the centre of Munich where the putschists are killed. Um, and it's a nighttime ceremony. The lights are turned out in Munich for the night so it's only lit by torches. Uh, the Social Democratic uh, Underground Observer of these events says that the majority of people in Munich view this and say, it's a little bit over the top, but we have to let Hitler celebrate his dead. But then he adds, rather depressingly, but there is no doubt that the city of Munich stopped to watch these events and people stood from the early afternoon in lines just to be able to watch the procession pass by. Um, that's one of the reasons why the putsch matters. It's because of its importance for the National Socialist ability to create their own regime. And it's a very important facet or feature in any argument about Nazism as a form of political religion. So in part, what I want to do in this book is show you why it matters historically in terms of the contribution the putsch makes to the Nazis' later myths, creation and myths of their own origins but also to situate it back in its historical time in 1923 and to put it into the context of a story of a democracy facing multiple threats that it ultimately uh, manages to um, overcome. Um, as I've said, anti-Semitism is, the, is the, the, the theme I want to pick out for tonight's lecture with obvious reasons. Um, and I want to start in the summer of 1922. Walter Rathenau, the German-Jewish foreign minister, the only Jew to hold the position of foreign minister in Germany in Germany's history, is murdered in, central, in Berlin on his way to the Foreign Office on the 24th of June, 1922. The picture I'm showing you on the slide um, is not a picture of Rathenau, obviously, and not a picture of his killers. Uh, the murder itself is a rather spectacular terrorist attack. It is three young men. Um, they're veterans of the First World War. They're members of an organization called the Organization Consul, which is a <coughs> right-wing terrorist organization founded by a man called Hermann Erhardt. 
uh, with its main roots in the German Navy. And so it's important to understand the German Navy has a particularly anti-Republican core strain of thought to it in the Weimar Republic because the Republic itself is in part born of the Navy. In November 1918, it's the sailors who revolt. It's the sailors who fly the red flag o o over their ships. And they, in turn, start the snowball that brings down the German Empire in the space of about 10 days from their first protests in Kiel on the 1st of November, when it's about 200 people meeting on the outskirts of Kiel, to the 9th of November, when it's tens of thousands marching through the centre of Berlin, calling for peace and for a republic. For German naval officers, this is a deeply, deeply humiliating experience. It's their men in their uniform that, in their words, have brought shame to the Navy, shame to the Navy's officers, and that have led to their uh, specific humiliation because in the winter, in December, they have to sail the surface fleet, they have to sail their ships over to Scapa Flow eventually, where they hand them over to the British. And then the Navy's officers, the vast majority of them don't stay in Scapa Flow, the vast majority come back to Germany where they're humiliated. And of those officers, a small cluster form anti-Republican military brigades called Freikorps, called Marine Brigades, and they engage in some of the most anti-Republican, anti-socialist violence in 1919 and beyond. They're the force for the Cap Putsch in 1920. If you're familiar with that, it's a short-lived anti-Republican putsch led by Wolfgang Kapp uh, to overthrow the Republic, uh, which also fails. Um, after its failure, the Marine Brigade, the second Marine Brigade, goes underground. Erhardt becomes the leader of a conspiratorial organisation with headquarters in Munich. This organisation is responsible for the murder of Matthias Erzberger in the summer of 1921. And in 1922, it sends its uh, unit, for want of a better term, to Berlin to kill Rathenau, which they do. And they do it in the form of a drive-by shooting because they've seen that Rathenau is driven in an open-top car from his home in Western Berlin into the centre of Berlin. And they follow him in another open-top car. And as, his, as the car therein overtakes, uh, two men in the back stand up. One pulls a machine pistol and opens fire on Rathenau. The other throws a grenade. Uh, Rathenau is killed more or less instantly. And it's ar arguably the most spectacular political murder of, of, in Germany in the 19, 1920s. It leads to this. This is not the image you think of when you think of the murder of a Jewish politician in Germany in the 1920s. This is not the image you see when you watch a documentary on Netflix about the rise of the Nazis. Those flags are black, red, gold. They're not the National Socialist colours. They're not the German Empire's colours. They're the colours of Weimar democracy. They're the colours of the democracy of 1848. This is a pro-Republican demonstration following Rathenau's murder, calling for the defence of the Republic. At the time when this, this is taking place, Rathenau's funeral <coughs> takes place as well. It's a state funeral. It is a major Republican demonstration. In its aftermath, the anti-Semitic motives of the killers are discussed. The dangers of anti-Semitism are discussed. And Germany's Jewish newspapers, remember Germany has about 1% of the population is, is Jewish at this time. They reflect too upon the murders and they see this as being a moment when the wider political culture in Germany will finally recognise that the warnings that they have been sounding about increased anti-Semitism since the end of the war uh, were not crying wolf. They say, people didn't believe us when we said this is how bad it has become in certain milieu. We now finally have the evidence for this. This is followed by the enactment of something called the laws for the protection of the Republic. These are a series of anti terror laws, we would call them today anti-terrorist legislation, which allow for the arrest and imprisonment of persons involved in anti-Republican political activities. And they follow with the creation of a special court called the Court for the Protection of the Republic, which is based in Leipzig at the German uh, Reichsgericht. So the German, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, sort of equivalent of the German Supreme Court. In other words, the aftermath to Rathenau's murder is a point in time when the Republic's supporters refound Weimar democracy and restate the case that they want to live in a liberal democracy and they condemn anti-Semitism within Germany. Let's pause for a second to think about anti-Semitism in Germany 
in the first three decades of the 20th century. I asked at the start, where is Weimar Germany in terms of its time? Uh, Anti-Semitism, the way I teach this when I talk to students, I say, look at 1902, look at Helmut Wolzer-Smith's um, book, The Butcher's Tale, the story of an anti-Semitic pogrom in the town of Konitz, which is in the north, northern coast, uh, following the allegations that Jews have engaged in a ritual murder. And Wolzer-Smith shows uh, how those rumours circulated and how that creates a surge in anti-Semitism, a surge in calls for violence among the local community in the town of Konitz, but that the state intervenes to protect and to stop that violence from slipping, to stop that threat of violence just from slipping over into, into more extreme acts of physical violence. In other words, the state soldiers prevent violence from happening because uh, I don't think it's because of a principled will to defend Jews. I think it's much more a principled... Um, the principle of maintaining law and order. On the eve of the First World War, I would point to uh, the German, German reactions to the mendel Bayliss affair. mendel Bayliss is a Jew in Kiev, in, in, in today's Ukraine, in then, uh, uh, then in the Russian Empire. He is put on trial in a show trial in the late imperial period, uh, where he is accused of engaging in a ritual murder. Uh, the Russian judiciary that want to push this trial through are looking to make a show, a showcase, looking to demonstrate uh, the evilness of the Jews. It is a classic anti-Semitic trope. They're implying, they're using that for political reasons, except it's an age of global interconnectedness, which means that what's happening in Kiev is watched and read about across Europe and the United States. News cables bring the news of the Bayless trial into Germany and into, the, into other countries. And German liberals are like those in other countries, condemning the backwardness inverted commas, barbarity of the Russians that they still believe in this old-fashioned stuff in these modern times. There are a small number of voices in Germany that try to support the Russian attempt to put Bayless on trial and try to say, you don't know for certain that there's no such thing as ritual murder, but those voices have little power, they carry little weight. The majority of newspaper readers are reading new liberal newspapers that are condemning the Bayless affair for what it is in the same way that we would condemn it today as an act of anti-Semitism, as an act of what we might call uh, medieval conditions that persevere in, into, into modern times. Um, some of my medievalist colleagues would probably find that un unfair, but you understand where, where, where we're coming from. This does not belong in the modern world. Germany also has another reason for pushing hard against the Bayless affair, it should be pointed out, because France is at this point in time allied with Russia, which means that Germans are also criticising France for being allied with a country that's barbaric and puts a uh, man on trial for being Jewish. Bayliss eventually is acquitted. It's in, he becomes an international uh, celebrity. The gist I'm making here is that in the decade before 1914, anti-Semitism as a political force in Germany is in decline. That is the crucial point. It is in decline. We cannot say that for the decade after 1914. For the decade after 1914, anti-Semitism in Germany is a resurgent force. And it is a resurgent force because of the First World War, and in particular because the losses of the war allow for anti-Semites to regain the initiative, to set the agenda, to start creating rumours Jews aren't fighting in the war. German Jews are not fighting, they're, in the, they're, they're, they're not contributing to Germany's war effort. This leads to the, create, to the establishment of something called a census, where the Prussian state actually takes a census of Jewish soldiers during the war to try to disprove the accusation that Jews aren't fighting. The problem with that is, once you concede the ground to an irrational belief, it doesn't matter what the factual results of the census are, the irrational belief says they needed to do a census, that means that proves already that Jews aren't fighting, we don't believe its results. The historical results show that German Jews are fighting more than non-Jews in Germany's armies, just for the, for the record. In 1918, as the revolution breaks out, I've spoken about the officers of the Navy having a particularly br brutalizing experience because they've lost the honor of their ships, they've lost the war, and their men are responsible for, def uh, for, for destroying the German Empire, removing the monarchy and creating the Republic. They're particularly angry. They're particularly susceptible to the idea that in this moment of trauma for them, that the Jews are responsible. That gives the Marine Brigades, the Naval Brigades, a particularly strong form of anti-Semitism. And this is matched 
in the writings of one individual I want to, uh, want to focus on. His name's Heinrich Klass. If you've read a book called We Men Who Feel Most German, he's a key figure in that. It's, a, it's an old classic history by a, a historian called Roger Chickering about German nationalist associations in the late imperial phase. These are the people who think that war is a good thing, that want Germany to go to war in 1914. Klass is a best-selling author in 1912. He writes a book, If I Was the Kaiser, and he basically argues, if I was the Kaiser, we'd start a war and we'd be great. Everything would be fantastic. He wants the First World War to happen. And when he, Germany loses in the winter of 1918, he should be finished as a political force. He's in a moment of absolute despair. His life project has come to an end. His diaries, his letters from this time, you can, and I have read them, you can capture how in the weeks after defeat, he sees only negativity. He's, he's traumatised. You know, he's believed in the glory of a victorious war his whole life. That's his life project. This moment in time, he's lost. And then the sentences start to become therapeutic. He starts writing more and more about one particular group. Germany's Jews, the Jews. That is the message that comes, creeps into his writing and his thinking in 1919. It helps him lift himself up like a boxer off the canvas to get back up and continue the fight, to be even more fixated on an enemy that he believes responsible for this trauma. He is one individual, but this is happening, I will argue, on a social level. That is part of the world that creates the conditions in which Rathenau is killed in the summer of 22, and it's part of the world that creates the conditions for Hitler's growth in popularity, which really happens from the late winter of 1922 to 23. 23. 23, as I said, Hitler's breakthrough year. At the start of the year, he has about 8,000 followers in the Nazi party. By the eve of the putsch, about 50,000. In terms of his significance as a political figure, it changes dramatically over the course of, of, of the 12 months between November 1922 and November 1923. And one, one illustration of that is in, in November 1922, there's a political crisis in Bavaria, and in the Bavarian parliament, they're talking about who could be the next Bavarian uh, Prime Minister. For those who aren't familiar, Germany is a federal system at this time, which means each of the federal states has its own parliament, its own, uh, its own army, and its own uh, police and judiciary. And at this point in time in Bavaria, somebody in the parliament, somebody says, Hitler, and everybody in the room laughs because he's not taken seriously as a political figure at that point in time, as a threat to the democracy. A year later, he launches the, 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 coup, the, the, the putsch, and obviously in the, in the weeks before that, he's setting the agenda in, in, this, in Munich. Thomas Mann, in, the, in 1923, calls Munich the city of Hitler. That's how quickly he has become the defining feature of politics at a local level in Munich. And um, watching from within the Social Democratic Party at the time, in the spring, uh, one of the respondents, a Social Democrat called uh, Alan Senger, who is not Jewish, but who's actually beaten up as, and accused of being Jewish, uh, beaten up by the SA, he writes that Hitler is clearly a psychopath in the spring, but his, his voice is not... Being, being listened to. The reason he suggests Hitler is a psychopath is that Hitler is bringing the kind of discourses that have existed within the Marine Brigades and within organisations among men like Klaas, bring them to a wider audience in his speeches throughout the uh, late autumn of 22 and into the spring and summer of 1923. Hitler's not on his own doing this. Uh, one person who's engaged in the same process is in Kitzingen. She is a female leader of um, an SA, SA group, a speaker. Andrea Ellent is her name. And Andrea Ellent brings together all of these points. She's a bit unique as well because she's a woman and we tend not to think of early Nazi leaders as being female, but she is, she is a woman. Her husband was a naval officer in the First World War who was killed, and she then becomes one of the most virulent right-wing speakers in Franconia, which is a wine-producing region, and in the autumn of 1922, she gains a following, she gains popularity, and she manages to escape prosecution through the laws for the protection of the Republic that I've spoken about, um, because they are not enforced in full, to full effect in Bavaria, because Bavaria itself at this time is more right-wing than the Republic itself. And this is shaping up to be a clash between the liberal north in Prussia and the conservative south in Munich. And one of the ways in which she gets around 
the laws for the protection of the public, and one of the ways they are weakly enforced is, uh, for example, assemblies, political assemblies, are anti-Republican political assemblies are banned, but Ellent simply creates a society called the Andrea Ellent um, Listeners Club. And so rather than attending an event as a, mem as, as a member of the public, you become a member, and that for the Bavarian authorities is enough to allow you to attend for that not to be banned. Ellent is also is in, is, is important for a couple of other reasons, one of which is she's gaining popularity in this wine-producing region because of the fall in agricultural prices and because of the economic crisis and it's what's happening to the value of the German currency in the second half of 1922. I will come back to that in one second. Alongside it, I want to say, just thinking about how she spreads an anti-Semitic message to women, some of her assemblies are for, for women only. So a meeting with Andrea Ellent, no men can attend, it's for women only. And in those meetings, she speaks about things like miscarriage. Um, she talks about failure to conceive. And she says, you can't trust your doctor. Medicine is a Jewish science. It's the Jews who are really responsible for why you have had a miscarriage. It's an intimate form of spreading a message of hatred. This is an important context for, for a way of thinking about how those wider national imperial European issues, the state of the economy, uh, give rise and make the anti-Semitic message appealing alongside intimate messages about the body, uh, about individual, an individual's body, bodily experiences, human experiences. This is part of what makes the anti-Semitic message at this time so powerful. The economy, uh, we have, as some of you will know, a decade of inflation in Germany between 1914 and 1923. That decade of inflation, however, is not linear. Uh, it's caused because Germany uses the method of printing money to finance the war in 1914. Um, that debases the currency value and it leads to, you know, a challenge for German policymakers in the winter of 1918-1919, which is how do we return the German currency to the gold standard? How do we restore stability? Uh, how do we wean ourselves away from the idea that we can fund everything through printing more money? And in the winter of 1918-1919, no policymaker wants to take that decision. In the year 1919, no policymaker wants to take that decision because inflation and printing extra money has written off state debt. It's also written off farm debt. Um, and it gives the state the capacity to expand its welfare programs following a defeat in war. <coughs> That is a really important point. Inflation in 1919 in the early Weimar Republic brings advantages as well as disadvantages. It allows the state to expand its social services. Remember, the Weimar Republic is a promise of equality between workers and owners of capital. It's a promise of some form of unification of their needs and interests, and that means a strong welfare state. And that strong welfare state is funded through, partially through print, printing extra money. Second point to remember of importance is that at this, in, in these years between 1919 and 1923, and the hyperinflation of the summer of that year, um, the process is not linear. There is almost a successful management of the currency away from inflation towards stability, <coughs> increasing taxation, decreasing the amount of extra money printed. It's Matthias Erzberger who's doing this which is also one of the reasons why, before he's murdered, he's so, so hated on the political right. Because as finance minister, he's increasing taxes, and he is making the republic's financial stability a success. What have I not spoken about? Reparations. These sto this story of inflation, destability, increasing support for far-right politics, anti-Semitism, this is a domestic story. And in the autumn of 22, following Rathenau's murder and the, in the moment of the refoundation of the Republic, in a stable international system, this is an argument I'll put forward, the supporters of German democracy are in, an, in a fight that I think they will win. But they're not in a stable international system, they're in an instable international system. And as these processes have been happening in Germany, radicalization of nationalism is happening around Europe, and in particular in France. France has lost an area the size of the Netherlands to complete destruction during the First World War. 
That area needs to be rebuilt, needs to be reconstructed. Rathenau, before his death, he proposes one idea which I think is really, really important, but really to almost totally forgotten. He proposes through something called the Wiesbaden Accords that France and Germany will cooperate together to rebuild France and that German companies will work with French in French territory to rebuild, uh, reconstruct the, the part of, of um, France destroyed in the war. Uh, that idea comes to nothing in, 19, in the early 1920s. That idea becomes the European Union after the, 19, the Second World War and in the 1950s. After the First World War, there are not enough people who share that vision to allow it to happen, to allow it to become reality. Uh, Europeans step back from their future, in other words, in 1920, 1921. They step back from a future of cooperation, even though visionaries like Rathenau and his, his corresponding French, uh, uh, French minister for reconstruction um, can see that potential Europeans step back from it because they're not willing to take it because the power of nationalism is greater than the power of cooperation. Lloyd George, always the villain, plays a role in that too because Lloyd George, when he looks at this potential for Franco-German cooperation at Wiesbaden, he doesn't want that to go ahead because that will reduce Britain's influence. So Lloyd George actively suppresses the Wiesbaden Accord from, Accords from developing into something just as French industrial leaders do too, because they don't want German businesses participating in the reconstruction of France after the First World War, because it will hit their profits. This is the scenario in 1922, the year when Europe is something that T.S. Eliot calls the wasteland. That situation and those crises become dramatically more difficult when this area here in Stripes on the left, the Ruhr district is occupied in January. France occupies the Ruhr district with the support of Belgium um, because France, French Prime Minister Raymond Poincaré does not believe that France is sufficiently paying, uh, as Germany is making sufficient effort to pay its reparations. It's important to note the Versailles Treaty allows for the occupation of the Rhineland, which takes place from January 1920. It's a question as to whether it allows for the occupation of the Ruhr district. The Ruhr district is Germany's economic heartland. It's the coal-producing region. At this time, that's where the, main, main, the most important source of energy. And its importance to Germany is even greater because Germany has just lost or is losing the regions of Silesia, the coal-producing regions in the east. So the occupation has lost them. In 1923, the occupation of the Ruhr then creates an existential crisis for the German, German policymakers to, for the Weimar state. Can the German industrial economy survive without the Ruhr, with the Ruhr occupied? That gives rise to a policy on the German side called passive resistance. The occupation takes place on the 11th of January. Up to 100,000 soldiers are brought in at Poincaré's behest. They're there nominally to accompany a group of around 100 engineers and technicians. And those engineers, their job is to examine the German mines and the German uh, possession of coke and coal and to examine if Germany is contributing and paying its reparations in kind. Remember, we all think of reparations as being financial transfers, but the Versailles Treaty also includes the allowance of reparations in kind. I mentioned the legality of the occupation. The legality is a question because France... Raymond Poincaré, of course, says this is legal, we can do this, it's justified by the Versailles Treaty. Weimar Germany responds, this is not legal, you cannot do this, it's not justified by the Versailles Treaty. And Britain says, we're not sure, so we're not going to say anything. And that becomes a crucially important point for the duration of the crisis of the year 1923, because in August, to fast forward the story, in August, the British Foreign Secretary uh, publishes a letter, the Guardian calls it their speech, the Guardian calls it one of the most important interventions in British foreign policy ever, along those lines, paraphrasing here, and in that moment he says the occupation is illegal. That changes the dynamic of the crisis year 1923. What's happened in the first eight months of the year is that on the German side, the policy of passive resistance has attempted to make the occupation of the Ruhr a failure by putting workers on strike. And so 
If you remember, the French occupy the Ruhr with the goal of extracting coke and coal. It's an economic, op uh, an economic um, operation at first glance. Germany doesn't have an army to respond, so German workers go on strike to protect the nation. It's a nationalist strike. Again, it's an upturning of the world, an upturning of order, because we don't expect workers to be striking to save the nation. We expect workers to be striking for revolution. So the workers go on strike to protect the, the German nation, to stop the French occupiers from getting, and Belgians from getting what they want. That quickly leads, leads to radicalization on the ground in the Ruhr. I don't have time to go into all of those forms of radicalization in the first six months of 1923, but I will say they are as you would expect them to be. Civilians are shot by soldiers. Every time a German civilian is shot by a soldier, that leads to an outcry. It leads to, uh, it leads to accusations of brutality on the part of the occupying forces. German women and girls, and also a small number of boys and men, are raped. Again, sexual crimes are part of occupations. That leads to outcry. It also leads to an instrumentalization of, of the female body on the part of the Weimar state, because the Weimar state collects data on rape to use it as an advertisement of the brutality of the French and the injustice of their occupation, but while doing so, it advertises to women across Germany that Weimar cannot protect their bodies in an occupied zone. So it has this very ambivalent legacy for what uh, Weimar is in its longer term in terms of how, how it protects its, its citizens. It is a humiliation for what was once a great power to be occupied in this way. As a small footnote, we always have to remember Weimar Germany, it's a post-imperial society too. In the summer of 1918, when Germany wins the war in Brest-Litovsk in the east and gains, through the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, massive territories of Eastern, Eastern Europe, the German Empire at that point in time has reached its zenith. And for imperial, imperial dreamers like Heinrich Klaas and others, this is the moment in which they are facing their, their, their greatest victory, their moment of elation. Uh, a year later, they get the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, humiliation, and they say they're treating us like a colony. And that mantra is present in all political groups in the year 1923, whether it's Friedrich Ebert with the SPD or Hitler on the far east. Germany's been treated like a colony. They're treating us badly. We can't, you cannot treat a European nation like this. And that pushes them, radicalizes, radicalizes, radicalizes. The theme I want to stress is that for the first six months of the year, 1923, the occupation radicalizes German politics. De-escalation is impossible. It is impossible to uh, find a way to um, bring uh, the rural crisis to an end because of the levels of violence. This is an important incident. Bloody Sunday in, in Essen, 1923, a group of French uh, soldiers go to the Krupp works. They occupy one building where they're trying to, um, they're, they're there for the purpose of seizing vehicles, seizing, seizing trucks, workers surround them, and when the time comes, the French emerge and open fire on the working, on the working demonstration, uh, which leads to more than a dozen uh, fatalities on the German side and great outcry. And sympathy in Britain too, uh, British, uh, whether it's the Times or the Guardian uh, or uh, British public servants looking in, they see this as an act of uh, terrible violence against civilians. So this process of radicalization is motoring through the year 1923, and the question is how to turn it around, how to reverse it, and why that reversal process does not happen sooner. And as I've said, in the summer of 1923, just as the moment when Gustav Stresemann, who I hope some of you have heard of, the liberal chancellor, Weimar's greatest statesman, in the words of his biographer, Jonathan Wright, uh, when he becomes chancellor for the first time following the, the collapse of the Kuno government, the government's overseen passive resistance, just as Stresemann comes to power with the knowledge that they have to end passive resistance and they have to stop printing money, that's the point when Britain says, actually, the occupation of the Ruhr is illegal. And at that point in time, Stresemann cannot give up the policy of passive resistance that close to what could be a German victory. I've called this the summer of zeros in my book. This is the consequence of this uh, printing of money. Uh, the summer of the wheelbarrow would be another way to describe it because the printing of money reaches the, the, the extent that the value of money is changing hourly. Uh, quickly, notes become meaningless. This picture of children playing with meaningless money. The reason I say the summer of the wheelbarrow is because 
the story that circulates is you needed a wheelbarrow to carry the amount of money you needed to buy something simply in the shop. But if you left your, uh, your wheelbarrow full of money outside a shop, your wheelbarrow would be stolen, but no one would steal your money because it's going to be worthless in, uh, in, in a few hours' time. This is the process of radicalization, which is the backdrop for the increasing support for Hitler within in, in the putsch over, over the course, course of the year. So Stresemann continues the policy of passive resistance in August and September, and those become crucial weeks because with each week, conditions in Germany worsen. Until the end of September, when finally Britain's Prime Minister and the French Prime Minister meet in Paris. And again, if you ever were thinking about the value of having European institutions, as this crisis happens, there's no diplomatic centre where Britain, France and Germany can come and talk to each other about what's happening. What's happening in the British case is other countries are pressurising Britain, saying Germany's the largest economy in Europe and it's tanking. You've got to show the leadership because French, the French won't withdraw from their policy because at this point in time, France's policy is they're going down, but they'll go down before we go down. So it's a victory for us. At this point in time, after the holiday season, uh, Britain eventually comes, uh, British Prime Minister um, comes to Paris and meets his French counterpart and they issue a joint statement saying that they're in complete unity and that it was only a mistake. Re they don't say it in those terms, but really what they say is it was a mistake that the Foreign Secretary of Britain said uh, it's Lord Curzon as the Foreign Secretary. There's a backstory that him and the, um, um, Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, both hate each other. That's a backstory which plays a role. Um, but when, when Baldwin finally comes to Paris, they issue a statement saying that uh, Britain is on France's side, basically. That's the point when Stresemann, at the end of September, says we have to uh, abandon passive resistance. And that triggers the crisis of the Weimar state, a now-or-never moment. Uh, for anyone who wants to destroy Weimar democracy. And so that now or never moment proceeds in left-wing strongholds, Turingen, Saxony, um, it proceeds in Hamburg, uh, elsewhere, the idea of a German Red October, a Lenin-style revolution in Germany on the 9th of November. The dates matter to all of these extremist groups. Um, and they're thinking how you know, on the, on, the, on the far left, they're thinking that this is the time. Uh, communists are brought into governments in two of the German federal states, um, Saxony and Thuringen. On its own, that would be a major crisis. And um, at the same time in Bavaria, the National Socialists are looking to the example of Mussolini. Uh, the year before, when Mussolini has come to power through the March on Rome, which of course, I hope most of you know, was not an actual really a putsch driven from a march, but actually Mussolini was invited to form the government by the Italian king with the support of lots of uh, political leaders, but he stylized it as a march. And that stylizing idea of the march on Rome was, was particularly appealing to, to, to the National Socialists and particularly appealing to, to uh, Hitler himself. Um, in October, uh, November 1922, when Mussolini is... Um, uh, becomes Italian prime minister. It's, you know, it's the first time there's a fascist state. So you know, suddenly we have after, after you know, it's clear that the Bolsheviks are there to stay, and we have what's becoming the Soviet Union. We now have the alternative in the far right, the fascist state for the first time. And this moment, the editor of the Volkischer Bill Bachter, the Nazis newspaper, he says, "We too have a Mussolini. The German Mussolini's name is Adolf Hitler." And the example of Mussolini both transforms Hitler as a person and provides a script for what his movement should do. And I think that cannot be overestimated in terms of its importance as an idea of what the Nazis should do. Uh, and in the crisis of October 23, when the Weimar state is at its weakest, this is the model that Munich's fascists want to follow. The time has come for them to launch their march on Berlin. Their plan is to first seize power in Munich followed by a seizure, uh, followed by, and um, once they've done that, they want to march north to Berlin. And this creates the prospect of civil war because the places where the left is strongest are Thuringen and Saxony. And if you know your German geography well, you'll know that from Munich to Berlin, you've got to go through those two places. So there's a real prospect of civil war. As you know, that civil war doesn't happen. I'm going to leave aside the third state crisis that's happening this time, which is separatism. That's the attempt with the backing of the French for the Rhineland to become an independent republic, which fails also in violence. In the case of the communists, their relation that Germany is on the verge of some form of October moment, 
along the lines of 1917 quickly dissipates because even in their strongholds they can't get workers to proclaim their support for a violent uprising. <coughs> and so the planned uprising doesn't happen. It gets cancelled in Saxony. It gets cancelled in Thuringen. It only happens in Hamburg. In Hamburg, the, the leadership is more radical and they're determined to go ahead whatever the cost. And so the uprising in Hamburg takes place and is suppressed violently um, on its own. It had no chance of success. Elsewhere, left-wing communists step back from the idea of marching uh, of trying to seize power, using violence to seize power. Those who are allied with Hitler but operating in the shadows, conspiratorial forces in the army, industry, they meet in the autumn too in what I call the now or never moment and they think about what to do next and they too step back. In the shadows, in the conspiratorial meetings, they, they conclude that if it comes to the civil war that I've spoken about, they will lose. They conclude that they, will not be, they do not have the power to defeat the forces that support democracy, particularly those forces in Prussia itself. We always think of Prussia as this really negative place in, in Germany, the regions of old Prussian, Prussian militarism, German militarism. The Allies eradicated Prussia from the map in 1945 as a punishment for Prussia's crimes historically. In the Weimar Republic, as I preach to anybody who'll listen, Prussia is actually a bastion of liberalism. It's a really liberal place. It's governed by the Social Democrats for the entire republic until the summer of 1932. Uh, some of the most positive attempts to sta stabilise and support democracy are coming from Prussia. They conclude, those conspiratorial people around uh, Reichswehr leader General von Siecht, they conclude, we will not win, we have to step back. Hitler has preached violence, anti-Semitism all year, and Hitler cannot step back in October and November. He has brought his followers to boiling point, he cannot let them down without a put without an attempt to violently seize power. He has radicalised himself to the point that he must do something. Um, his personality that we know from the Third Reich is already present. He's 34 on the day the putsch takes place. It's already present this year. Um, it has been developed over the course of the year. He has um, first been successful in January with the founding party conference of the Nazi, uh, what will become eventually the Nuremberg rallies. That takes place in January 1933 in Munich. It's a great success for the Nazis because in contrast to the expectations put that, that it would descend into violence, it's actually a pr pretty ordered event and that makes Hitler's critics look like they have no force. You know, they say there's going to be a lot of violence when this event takes place, we should ban it. The state says initially we'll ban it and then they reverse and say we won't ban it and then it happens and the police have nothing to do that night because the Nazis uh, behave themselves. That's the shortest possible story but that's a great success for Hitler. Hitler's birthday uh, on the 20th of April 1923 uh, um, is the first time he's celebrated in front of a large audience as um, you know, the saviour of Germany. Uh, that is the point in time when Hitler gets his first, I think, arguably, real ego trip as he can be the coming leader. Right? We don't know who celebrated Hitler's birthday with him in 1919. It's possible in 1919 he spent his birthday on his own. Remember, this guy's no family, no friends, um, other than his army unit. It's quite possible that he was on his own. Suddenly in 1923, he has five to 10,000 people listening to him speak on his birthday, celebrating him as the man who will save Germany, uh, the next Mussolini um, shortly after that, in May, he suffers his first real humiliation setback when he wants to launch a, a military assault on Social Democrats marching, in, marching for May Day in, in Munich. He wants to do that. It fails. Uh, uh, he's deeply, deeply humiliated. Um, the example of violent resistance in the, against the Ruhr occupation, which I haven't talked about, forms of terrorism that is engaged by German agents operating in the dark um, with some clandestine support from the state, which is later withdrawn that uh, inspires Hitler over the summer of 1923 uh, that, to, that his, he can call for Germany to become a nation of Schlagatters. Schlagatter is a man executed by the French in May. Um, that pushes Hitler to the point in October where he cannot step back. So even though the best opportunity to march against the state has actually passed, he launches the putsch in, in November. Um, I've spoken for a very long time. I want to finish with some remarks. I want to come back to this map underneath the word Turing, and I don't know if you can see it, right in the middle of Germany between Frankfurt and, and Coburg is a place called Autenhausen. Autenhausen is on that map. 
because of what happens there at the start of November. Because in Outenhausen at the start of November, there's one Jewish family in a village. Two men, their wives. Everybody's asleep, it's a small town, sleepy place. The noise that comes, it's drunken men marching in, singing. They surround their houses, smash in the doors, tell those Jewish men that the, I'm paraphrasing here, the real German race is here. They then drag the men out. It's not a robbery, although they do rob things from their homes. They bring them outside of the village and then they stage a mock trial. And the mock trial features uh, language such as, what will we do with our Jews? Will we hang them? And then the, the response says, we have no rope. Will we shoot them? We have no bullets. And so instead they beat them with shovels and kicked them and punched them and leave them for dead. Except neither of the men dies. Instead they crawl back to their home, go with their wives and leave that night. From that point on, there's no longer Jewish presence in Outenhausen. There's been a Jewish community there for centuries. They're the last Jews to leave. They go, they move to a larger community, they move to the cities. A process we associate with, much, with the 1930s of Jews fleeing oppression and violence and finding uh, safety, German Jews, in larger communities uh, is, already happens in this case. They move to a larger, a larger city. That is one incident of violence against Jews that takes place as the crisis of 1923 crescendos. It's one of the most brutal and it's one of the, one of the most well-documented, but it is one of many. There is an increasing level of anti-Semitic violence across the year 1923, which does not produce the same response as the murder of Rathnau in 1922. And one of the arguments that I'm trying to make, provocatively maybe, is that it's because the international crisis is impinging upon Germany to such a degree that political leaders like Stresemann, Ebert and others, those who may otherwise have a great deal of sympathy for Germany's Jewish population and may wish to push for stronger enforcement of, of laws protecting of Jews, uh, cannot do so because the international situation, the crisis of state. In other words, there's a radicalization of the anti-Semitism and the conditions in which anti-Semitic violence can take place caused by an international system, caused by an, inter in, in, an intervention. Just a few days after Outenhausen, there are a series of riots, anti-Semitic riots, in the Scheunefiertel in Berlin. This is a poor area at the eastern end of Unter den Linden. It's a stone's throw away from the royal uh, palace and stables, um, and it's an area associated with Eastern European Jews. Those riots take place over, uh, they, they start because of a rumor that Jews are hoarding money, and they're hoarding money, and that is reducing the availability of, of uh, workers to spend their money of, of, of the worthless currency to function to any degree. And so there's about 24 hours of rioting. Uh, one story I want to pick from this is that the Jewish Veterans Association of the First World War has plans in place to protect Jews in the streets of Berlin if they are attacked in some form of pogrom or violence. So they mobilize immediately when this violence starts. They go to this area of Berlin and they protect Jewish shops from uh, and Jewish uh, uh, people on the street from violence. And when the police arrive, the police end up arresting the Jewish veterans, protecting the Jews from an anti-Semitic mob. In 1924, there's a whole legal process into that. Three police officers are dismissed. Uh, there is an attempt to bring some form of justice, which is an, uh, which is, um, an intriguing facet of a form of fight back against anti-Semitism. Anti Within that process of violence during the riots, I want to highlight on something that the contempor contemporaries called strip commandos. Strip commandos, the German terms Entziehungskommando, refer to a practice of a mob of anti-Semites chasing a Jewish person in the street, removing their clothing from them, and then chasing them through the streets. So you can think of a real form of medieval-style humiliation of human, display of the body, uh, violence, humiliation, the violence for the purpose of humiliation. This is part of what's happening in this moment in time. This is why I say 1923 isn't just Hitler's breakthrough year, but it's also a radicalizing point in the history of anti-Semitism anti in Germany, the worst year to be Jewish in Germany before 1933, in the modern era. That is one example. The Social Democrats respond by saying Berlin has disgraced itself in their newspaper, the Vorwärts. 
they organised 20 demonstrations in support of Jews in the weeks after the, the riot. But it's an ambivalent ending because, as I, as I suggested previously, the level of crisis facing the state means that an attempt to, uh, an attempt to deal with this form of anti-Semitism in a stronger, more meaningful way cannot happen because the state is fighting for its life and these, in a multiple, multiple series of crises. To finish with Munich itself, in Munich, Gustav Ritter von Kahr, the head of a directorate, is appointed dictator, really given dictatorial powers in response to the crisis. Kahr is a lifelong anti-Semite. In 1921, he has tried to deport Jews from Germany uh, he has been prevented to do so by the Bavarian Parliament. In 1923, in October, he attempts to steal the thunder from Hitler by being more anti-Semitic than him, which is not a challenge for him because he is an extraordinarily anti-Semitic man, and he begins to deport Jews from Munich in the autumn of 1923. Families are deported. The language around the deportations will be familiar to anybody who's uh, studied how arguments are made about deportation of migrants uh, today in Germany, for example. Can we deport somebody's children alongside them if the children were born in Munich? Why are they what is the reason given for those deportations? They're blaming Jews, Jewish migrants who've come to Germany some 20 years pre previously, some during the war. There's been a surge of migration during the war into Germany from Eastern Europe due to the pogroms against Jews uh, as a result of the collapse of the Russian Empire. That is then being turned into forms of anti-Semitism, anti calling for expulsions of Jews, and in Munich, cars pushing that agenda ahead, and actually people, families are being deported. Someone who owns a business, the Business Association of Munich, provide that, you know, they go to car and they say, you can't deport this guy, he employs people. Uh, that's at one end of the scale. At the other end of the scale, this Jewish person committed a crime in 1914, we'll, de we'll deport them in 1923. It's a subject about which we actually don't nearly know enough, um, but we know that process of deportation is taking place. That is part of the history of Bavaria, Weimar, and the days leading up to the putsch. It ends ambivalently too. Stresemann is aware of this. He's condemned. He's criticized for doing this. The Social Democrats quit a, co a coalition government, and one of the last things they say as they quit Stresemann's coalition, leading to Stresemann falling from being um, um, chancellor, they say, you can't allow Bavaria to proceed with medieval-style expulsion of Jews. You have to do more. Stresemann ignores that issue, which is um, deeply problematic for his legacy, to say the very, very least. Um, there is, an, as I say, an ambivalent ending to that story. The, the deportations continue at a reduced rate into 1924, and eventually they dwindle to, uh, and, and eventually are, out, are, are no longer legally valid. In the putsch itself, what is largely forgotten is that alongside Schäubner Richter and Hitler at the front, there's a man called Baron Theodor von der Forten. The Baron at the front has the constitutional document for what the Nazis will implement if they become uh, in control of the state. And it's widely forgotten, this document, largely unread, not acknowledged. Uh, it's written in a legal form. He's a provincial court judge in Bavaria, so he knows how to form a legal document. And in it, it includes multiple fantasies of violence. It includes terms which will give the Nazis the right to execute every person who's politically opposed them since the 8th of November 1918. In other words, legally, it contains a justification for murdering or killing every single person who has supported the Weimar Republic and opposed the Nazis since the creation of the Republic, dated to the date of the revolution in, in Munich. That is a fantasy for mass violence. Um, there, are, there are many, many, many... Um, uses, sentences, phrases in it which end with shall be punishable by death. For the Jews, there are special measures. Jews, Jewish life is to be removed from Germany, dismissal of civil servants, something you'll be familiar with from 1933. Those ideas are present there at that point in time. Uh, they are a part of the imaginary of what the Nazis want to do if they um, manage to succeed in taking control of the state. I want to just focus on one final point in that document. They state that the punishment for any German, non-Jewish -Germ, non German, I have to be careful with the terminology because it's hard to not reify some of their racist terms, 
any non, um, non-Jewish German or who helps a Jew try to escape from their measures will be punished with death. That is the imaginary of the Putschists who are trying to seize the power and control the state in 1923. During the night of the Putsch in the streets of Munich, they do attack Jews, but they, it fizzles out. They, those at the bottom have an idea that they must attack Jews when they take power, but they don't have the mechanisms or leadership for how to do so. That comes a decade later. To finish, an indication of the success of the Republic in defeating its multiple, multi, multiple crises and surviving through 1923, through the 1923 crisis I spoke about at the very start of this lecture, that this is a part of that story, that it's the survival of the Republic takes place, but it does so without successfully dealing with the anti-Semitism that emerges in the year 1923 that reveals itself and that will reveal itself with greater power in the year 1933 and beyond. And to finish, a quote from the Jüdische Echo, which is a obviously German-Jewish newspaper. In 1923, it spoke about the growth of anti-Semitism since 1918 and since the war, which I've spoken about, and it describes this as the poisoning of public opinion against the Jews. And I'll finish with a quote from this newspaper. The worst and most shameful thing about the flood of senseless and thoughtless hatred of Jews throughout all classes of the population is the lack of voices of reason and humanity on the part of the Christian population. Too many people have been entirely silent and inactive against the year-long continuous anti-Semitic incitement to hatred that has been driven by lies and defamation. Thank you for your attention. I apologize for talking too long. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie.